Amy McHugh, Senior IT Consultant at Clifton Larson Allen and an attorney focused on financial cybercrimes, says legal disputes involving incidents of account takeover are about to get a lot more interesting. So what lessons should banking institutions be learning from recent decisions and expected appeals in cases involving ACH and wire fraud? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. Amy, you've been closely watching some of the banking industry's most noteworthy account takeover cases, including those filed by Experi Metal, Patco, and Choice Escrow. What overall theme are you seeing emerging here? What I see emerging is the court's increasing reliance on regulatory guidance, particularly the FSIEC's 2005 and 2011 guidance on authentication in the Internet banking environment, and also um, the court's reliance on the FSIEC's IT examination handbooks, kind of as de facto industry standards, um, and assisting in their determination of what constitutes commercially reasonable security procedures. I also see developing the, again, kind of the flushing out of the UCC 4A's analysis, again, of what constitutes a commercially reasonable security procedure, and also kind of uh, reliance on the good faith prong of the UCC 4A. While the security procedures may be commercially reasonable, are the financial institutions acting in good faith in their dealings with their business customers? So what should banks and credit unions be focused on, Amy, when it comes to some of these decisions and or settlements? Well, I think all financial institutions should be reviewing those two FSIEC guidance documents on authentication internet banking environment, particularly the 2011 supplement, because based on the increasing level of electronic funds transfer fraud in the industry, the FSIEC agencies are requiring more of their financial institutions as far as performing detailed annual risk assessments of their online banking services, making sure that particularly for their business customers, that perform higher risk electronic transactions, online ACH, wire transfer origination, that they should really be risk assessing those products and ensuring that they have implemented appropriate security measures to address the increasing risks for those services and also the risks that are becoming more apparent in the industry. And also the 2011 supplement requires financial institutions to implement some kind of customer security awareness education program meaning that they should be informing their customers, particularly those that perform high-risk transactions, about the fraud environment, what's existing out there, what additional steps those particular business customers can take in their own environment, meaning how do they protect their computers? Are they limiting their electronic funds transfer operations to a particular computer? Are they limiting web surfing on that computer? Are they ensuring that they have up-to-date and effective antivirus and patch management procedures um, for their systems so that if they do get some kind of a virus or a keylogger, for example, that they can catch it and they can neutralize it as soon as possible? Choice escrow, of course, has gotten a lot of attention, and it actually caught your attention. And you believe that this recent ruling handed down by a magistrate judge will actually be appealed. What's your feeling there? Well, the reason I think it will be appealed is based primarily on the court's analysis in PATCO. I think that in the Choice escrow case, it was a case of a small business that would initiate electronic funds transfers, and that because they only had two people that were doing these funds transfers, they did not want to implement a dual control system as suggested by their bank, Bank Corp South, because one of the two people may be out of the office and so it just wouldn't be 
feasible for that organization. And I think that Bancorp staff and the court kind of relied on that in determining whether the bank had actually implemented commercially reasonable security procedures. UCC4A talks about if a security procedure is considered commercially reasonable if a customer has been offered and then turns down another security procedure. So any security procedures that are still left in place, in this case, the user ID and password, and I believe a secure device token, which is a cookie on their computers, would be considered then commercially reasonable. This kind of bothered me in the sense that whether or not this was an actual um, issue for choice escrow, meaning we won't have both people in the office at the same time for most of the time to allow us to perform these electronic funds transfers, there are situations where you're going to have small business customers. And dual control, again, may truly may not be a feasible option for them. And I think the fact that kind of going back to the TATCO case, Bancorp South kind of offered this one-size-fits-all solution. So you take dual control. If you can't use dual control, if you don't want it, well, that's it. We don't have anything else. And I found that kind of questionable in the sense that, you know, UCC4A and the FFIEC guidance both state that financial institutions, when they're determining what security procedures to offer their customers and to implement, should take into account the circumstances of that particular customer. So I kind of see that maybe that might be an option here for a potential appeal in the sense that maybe these security procedures were not sufficiently tailored to this particular customer circumstances um, and that something else maybe should have been offered. And then what about some of the Article 4A implications here for commercial customers? Do you see some of that coming out in the choice escrow case as well? Yeah, definitely. And this has been stated before, too. The increasing awareness that customers, business customers, definitely have some responsibility for protecting their own systems, which I totally agree with. While the bank is in what's considered the better position to be aware of these particular security procedures and risks of electronic funds transfer systems, online banking systems, business customers still have some responsibilities as far as being aware of basic security procedures for their location. Again, going back to effective antivirus maintenance, patch management on their systems, limiting as much as possible any kind of internet activity on a particular PC that is used for online banking transactions, basic things such as appropriate password configuration, complexity, those kind of things. And I definitely think that business customers again, here differ from consumers in the sense that they're in a slightly better position than consumers to be aware of general risks and things that they should be able to implement into their system. But what I found, and again, this is, you know, from smaller institutions, I found some, been to some banks where they themselves are not necessarily as aware as I think they should be of particular security procedures and risks to their internet banking system, and that kind of filters down then to the customers. So if that answers the question, I think that, well, banks definitely have a better position and should be able to communicate to their customers what they should be doing. The business customers should also start taking some responsibility as far as protecting their own system. Even these smaller institutions, not just the customers, but the smaller institutions themselves oftentimes don't really appreciate all the risk and really aren't in the best positions to implement some of these detection solutions, anomaly detection that the larger institutions have. What recommendations then do you offer to some of these smaller banks and and credit unions when it comes to practices that they could implement that would not be tasking or that would not be a burden on their budget? 
Right. Well, I think the first thing is to communicate with their internet banking service provider. Their internet banking service provider definitely should be aware of the additional FICC guidance, should be aware of industry risks, and they can talk with their provider and say, okay, what have you implemented? What options do you have for us to help our customers address these risks? So I think that's the first thing is talk with your service provider to get information from them. I know they typically supply basic information about their systems, about all of the options of security procedures that they have that they can agree to and then offer their customers. That's the first thing. The second thing is for institutions to take a good look at all the online banking services they offer. Again, do the kind of time-tested risk assessment where they list out every service and they think of every possible threat that could occur to these particular services and make sure that those threats are mitigated as much as possible with implemented controls. And then with their customers, when their customers come in to set up an online banking account with these higher-risk external transactions, they need to sit down with that customer and say, okay, these are the risks that are in play for your particular setup. If you're performing online wire transfer origination, we want you to know that these are the things that can happen and that these are our highly suggested, highly recommended controls that you need to put in place. For instance, I think dual control definitely is a major control that business customers should have in place. Whether that's feasible for their particular operation, if they're too small, maybe then another option might be available. But that, first and foremost, I think is very important because then it gives another set of eyes to any kind of transfers that are initiated. Give somebody else verifying it before you send it. So make sure the financial institutions really sit down with their customers and aren't afraid to say, we're going to require you to change your internet banking password every 90 days. We're going to require you to have at least two authorized people to perform these external funds transfers. We're also highly recommending that you have an independent person at your organization set up as an authorizer for these particular transactions. So that if you initiate, again, we'll use the example of wire transfer electronically, say the bank receives it via secure email through online banking, the bank would then send a confirmation back to that company, not only to the person who requested the transfer, but also to another independent person at that organization so that there is another person viewing this transfer and making sure that it's okay. Also consider implementing out-of-band confirmations or verifications, meaning that if a bank receives a wire transfer initiation request via email, send a call to somebody at that organization to verify the email. Don't necessarily respond back to that same email because if the email address had been hacked, what you're doing is you're probably just sending a confirmation back to the fraudster and that the customer is not getting it. So dual control, out-of-band confirmation and verification, I think, is very important. And also just talking with the customers about basic security procedures and saying, these are the basic things that we're going to ask you to do. Not only is it protecting us, but it's protecting you, the customer. And not be afraid to kind of keep encouraging your customer to adopt these additional security procedures even if they would rather not. I've heard many times about banks saying that their business customers refuse to change their passwords. They do not want to be forced to change their passwords every 90 days. And that these business customers are actually saying, if you're going to force me to change my password every 90 days, I'm going to a different bank now. So then, of course, the banks, they don't want to lose that customer. So they say, okay, we won't force you to change your password every 90 days. Now, I think that's a really basic security control that financial institutions should kind of push back on 
and that business customers should consider as not being that onerous of a control because changing a password every 90 days I don't think is an excessive request. So I think banks should maybe keep reminding themselves that they're doing this for the best interest of the customer and that they need to kind of assist the customer in becoming more aware of their security procedures. Yes, that's a good point. And, of course, that's a point that's come up in a lot of these ACH and wire fraud cases that we've seen. And going back to that, are there any other cases worth noting that have not gotten a great deal of media attention like the Patco case and even the Choice Escrow case have that could perhaps offer some lessons or some insight to banking institutions? The Park Sterling Bank case is one that where there's a bank that is suing a law firm for a return of approximately $338,000 for a fraudulent wire transfer that originated through a hack into the law firm's system. What it sounds like after reading the complaint and then the law firm's answer, the law firm's computer system was infected with probably with a keylogger through one of the fraudulent notch emails that went around last year and that fraudsters initiated approximately $338,000 wire transfer to Russia on May 9th of 2012. The bank initially said that they were providing provisional credit to the law firm's IOLTA account, which is a trust account for their clients, so that it wouldn't have an overdraft while they were investigating whether they can get the funds back. They were not able to get the money back. The bank then told the law firm that they were going to take the money out of that account. The law firm got an injunction to keep the bank from taking that money. They took the money out of their account, and now the bank is suing the law firm to get the money back to cover the fraudulent wire transfer. In this case, they're relying on um, UCC4A and the FFIEC guidance. I, I found interesting in this case that there seems to be more explicit and detailed reliance on the FFIEC guidance as far as the law firm's argument that the security procedures that the bank had in place, which the law firm was username and password, and then it sounded like a device cookie on the machine, were not commercially reasonable because they did not adhere to the 2011 supplements requirements for multi-factor authentication layer security for higher-risk transactions. What was interesting about this case is that the law firm alleges that while they did have the user ID and password, and they also had a PIN number to initiate these funds transfers, that there was also a two security questions that a person had to answer in order to effectuate the transfer. The thing was, the law firm says that the bank, first of all, only offered two security questions. They were not changed. They were the same questions each time. And that the bank pre-populated the answer to the security question, which they also stated that was only four digits and it was something that was really intuitive relating to the bank. So those never changed. They were pre-populated, pre-programmed by the bank. So in essence, looking at that just from the facts of the two documents that I read, that doesn't seem like any kind of a security control. I don't know that that would be considered part of a layered program. So in essence, what it looks like is the security procedures that the customer had, the law firm had, were user ID and password, in essence, which is single-factor authentication, which is not adequate according to the 2011 guidance. So I found that really interesting. The law firm also alleged that it had found out that other customers of the bank who initiated online funds transfers also had the same two questions with the same answer pre-populated. If that's the case, I think the bank should change that immediately because that's almost the same as having each customer have the same password, which never changes. So in that, I don't think that's a very effective security control. But I think this case will be really interesting because 
it seems to rely more on the SSIEC guidance and how much of a requirement or what is actually required within that guidance for banks to follow in order to be considered a commercially reasonable security procedure and then also whether the bank is acting in good faith, are they providing adequate security procedures tailored, again, to the client. You know, it relies a lot on the contractual agreements between the bank and the firm, which are included as a um, exhibits with the bank's complaint, the uh, online banking agreement. There are a number of areas that are blank. For instance, there's signature lines that are blank. There are totals for, you know, are there limits on ACH wire transfers? It just seemed like the, co- the contract itself was not completed, maybe leaving some room open for what is this actually requiring? Yeah, that's definitely an excellent point. And it's interesting because the contractual agreements between banking institutions and their commercial customers has been one that, that's been brought up in all of these cases. Looking at all of these cases and and also, Amy, kind of pulling from some of what you've seen firsthand based on the IT solutions that you've seen banking institutions implement, what final thoughts or advice would you offer to banking institutions? First of all, they need to talk with their internet banking service providers if they haven't already to get information from those providers about the range of options that are available for online funds transfer uh, security procedures. Then they need to perform a thorough risk assessment of their banking services to ensure that they have implemented the appropriate security procedures based upon their provider's offerings and also based upon the particular circumstances of each customer, how many high-risk transactions they perform, frequency of those transactions, the amounts of those transactions to make sure that the controls they have in place are sufficiently tailored to the particular customer. I also think that they should, again, push back on the clients and say, well, these particular security procedures we're going to require for our protection and for your protection. Again, the complex password, changing passwords periodically. If possible, I think dual control, again, is very important. Out-of-band confirmations, so you initiate a wire transfer, we're going to call you to make sure that that's appropriate. Also, the banks, I believe, should implement some kind of anomaly monitoring and detection system, be that manual if they're a smaller institution or automated, to ensure that there's some kind of awareness of the customer's pattern of behavior as far as electronic funds transfer requests, so that something that is out of the ordinary, for instance, like in the Park Sterling Bank case, the wire transfer originated from an IOLTA account, again, a trust account for clients, was sent to Russia. The law firm states it had never, ever sent a wire transfer out of the country and that it wouldn't have sent something from that particular account to Russia. So the bank should develop some kind of awareness of the customer's patterns of behavior and then set up some kind of institutional reporting system. So periodically, maybe monthly, there's some kind of review and analysis of electronic funds transfer activity that is reported up to an appropriate committee and then potentially to the board so that there's senior management awareness of these electronic funds transfers activity, trends, patterns, et cetera. Amy, I'd like to thank you again for your time this morning. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Again, we've just heard from Amy McHugh of Clifton Larson Allen. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.